This is the Strode College Digital T level podcast. What's the computer? I've got no idea about any of this. What's a fan? I see you've done a Geographical distance based, yeah. hands, oh. wands, lands, nouns. Thank you, man. This is a copy of this. If you got here early enough, this is this is the other T level, but it's exactly the same material. This is awesome. This is your bedtime story. I've only got yeah, about four or five of the different units, but the, the, the key ones I've got copies of, so I'll get them pretty often. It goes with the same material as the other T level. Can you be quiet, please? So I'll get this out of the way. Out the way, yeah. It's recording. Otherwise, you can do a load of nonsense noise. This is for your revision, not mine. Yeah. The entertainment. So this is like to be It won't. I'm telling you. So networks, everyone knows geographical based, yeah? Personal, local area network, metropolitan, etc., etc. Hardware then. I've gone into detail with this. Different parts of the hardware. In this building, we've got switches. The switches are down on the floor below, on the corridor opposite where the toilets are. All of these computers, remember we talked about physical cables, Ethernet cables have a limitation of 100 metres beyond which they will not work. They just degrade, degrade, degrade until the end. They need to be repeated and amplified. So, 100 metres from here somewhere, I think it's downstairs in the room downstairs on the first floor, there is a room for the switches which connects all these machines then connects them again to another set of switches and again and again and again until they get to the server. Within 100 metres, there's lots and lots of switches. The router, I mean, the, the server then is connected via a router to the outside world, like your home router. It's just a device which connects a local area network to a wide area network. That's all it does. So a router basically connects networks together. Right? The switch connects its devices or nodes to the network, and then a router connects the network to other networks, and they make those decisions. Um, inside your PC or your laptop or whatever, you've got a, a PCI network card or some type of Wi-Fi card or some type of connector which sends the appropriate signals and handshakes and all the other thing to make sure that your machine connects to another machine to use their services. Um, and some network cards are based on USB, so you get little plug-in Wi-Fi dongles or what have you, or USB dongles. Uh, cabling, most of the cabling, again, this is a historical thing, copper is a really good carrier of electrical signals, so copper was predominantly used, and this goes back to the good old days of the telephone. Obviously, UK and America and countries like that were the first ones to develop telephones, so they laid loads and loads of copper cable all over the shop. Because it works okay, it carries a decent enough signal, it's been used predominantly up until fairly recently. Increasingly, though, like with the, all the digging up that's going in the roads up here, they're laying down fibre copper cable, the fibre is going from the main exchanges to the local exchanges, and sometimes you might have fibre to the local cabinets, or you might have fibre from the cabinet to your house. Right? So fibre to the fibre to the property, FTTP. Right? You, if most days, I think most of those little green, green cabinets have fibre back to the main exchange. So you've got fairly fast backbone, but you might have copper cable from the, the, the local exchange to your house, and copper cable has limitations. So I think at the moment... I think they can probably carry up to maybe a gigabyte, but no, nothing beyond that. Whereas five up is multiple gigabytes it can carry. But copper has a limitation just because of the structure of the metal, right? But with fibre, you can carry it down light and you can transmit massive amounts of data. 
hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. Once you've got your network working, you'll have wireless access points. You don't, not in here, but scattered around various rooms, there's wireless sort of um, amplifiers that you can connect to the network. That takes wireless signals, 2.4 or 5 gigahertz signal waves across the airwaves, picked up by the router, the wireless router, then it transmits it down to the server and sends it on. So there's all these different methods of carrying data that all talk to each other through standardization and they're all transmitted through various devices like switches and routers and all that other stuff. So it's all linked together in one massive mesh. And the actual internet itself is just a massive collection of cables and wireless stuff and routers and switches and all these other bits and pieces. In, in order to use the network, you obviously need a network operating system. So most, like the college uses Windows. I imagine it's Server 2012 they've got. It's quite expensive, so they haven't updated it. And it still functions reasonably well enough. The latest, for, I think it's 2019, is the re most recent Windows Server version, I think. And the operating system for that particular thing, you've got, as it says here, you've got paid for or proprietary systems like Microsoft Windows and Apple. Um, they are very careful and collect and uh, protective about their actual intellectual property, so they protect their code. You don't know how it works, you just got to buy it and you pay a license. And then you've got open source stuff like Linux and Unix, although that's a bit, bit grey and clouded because um, Apple actually sits on a version of Linux called BSD. And they just put stuff on layers and layers on top of it, which is proprietary, but they use Linux as their core operating system. But anyone can download and use Linux, and I think all of you have downloaded it onto virtual machines. And then you've got network operating systems. And again, Windows Server has network operating functionality in order for people to talk to it, in order to share printers, share resources, create your group policies. So when you log onto the network, it downloads your desktop appropriate to what your permissions are and everything else that you've got. Now, there are, there are um, specialised network operating systems, the, the classic one, I suppose, that don't, it no longer exists. The precursor, one of the, one of the main operating systems which started out being Unix-based was um, Novell, right? and lots of organisations still use Novell, but Novell as a company got sort of superseded by various other companies, and I think Novell bought out a Linux distribution, a German Linux distribution called SUS or SUSE, uh, and now they operate under the same thing. So if you if you operate with SUSE Linux, it's actually Novell underneath it, because Novell was originally a Unix-flavoured variant of an operating system. And network operating systems, again, just share out resources and control things, have much more authorization and protection of what you're doing, backup procedures, all those types of things. So again, in order to manage a massive network, you need a system that has all those functions built into it. So a network operating system. The key thing that it does then is in terms of software, it manages all your files. Hopefully when you log on to your network um, desktop, it's still got your files you were working on last week, hopefully for your homework or your, you know, your exam prep or whatever it might be. Uh, you've then got application software, obviously word processing, office suites, uh, video editing, all those types of things, things that allow you to do stuff. Protective software, firewalls, antivirus, all these things either run on the server or on the desktop or both. And then you've got ways to access the internet. The, the original way to access content on other servers was a, a, a browser. The original browser was um, bought out by sort of the precursor to Mozilla or Firefox. Um, and again, these days I think most people use the, the Google variant, which is Chrome. Uh, that's probably the most popular browser out there. And obviously they're proprietary ones. So on Microsoft now, their latest version is Edge. Um, and then Safari is on. Mac OS, I suppose. 
And the brow all the browser is is a, is a productivity software which allows you to communicate with a server's web software. So it allows you to go to another computer and look at their files and make them into some sort of thing that makes sense. That's all the browser does. The browser uses HTTP in order to go to another machine, pull the files off, and then display them to you in some format or interact with that so other server. Safari uses um, Google anyway. Yeah, I think most people do use that Google underneath them. Or, um, Just search it automatically on Google when you search them. Yeah, it's the Chrome, the Chrome kit, isn't it, underneath it? Increasingly, I think. Um, so, then in terms of extensions to the network, making more widely things, we've now got the Internet of Things. So every single device has an operating system embedded in it, including functionality, which allows it to connect to other devices. So if you buy something, even if you buy toys and things these days, those toys have, if they, depending on how much functionality they've got, have built-in operating systems and will be able to connect your internet and go back to the main thing to update the software automatically over the air updates. Um, and again, uh, there are problems with that in terms of security, but most things are, have embedded systems and need to communicate with each other, particularly these days because software is never perfect. So if you buy a device which is internet-enabled, periodically it will poll the server to download the latest version of the software. Um, and that depends on how often that happens. So at home, I've got a music server, and every now and again, it will do a firmware update and download and improve and add some functionality, and just has to connect the internet to do that. So devices dedicated to basic services, data collection, manipulation and analysis, required servers to process task information. Again, all of these devices are dumping that data somewhere, so somebody's doing something with it. So you need some way of managing it, once it's collected, how do you organise it? Once you can organise it, how do you interrogate it, etc., etc.? And analysing that stuff's really important. Again, we talked about this a few times now. Cities increasingly becoming smart cities. They're collecting all sorts of data about people's patterns and behaviours because everyone's carrying around basically communication devices which says exactly what they're up to all the time, whether it's your active phone or your, I mean, active phone or your watch or whatever you carry around with you. And as I said, cities now are putting in 5G devices to track every single signal that's going out there. So everything's being collected and, and analysed. Um, you've then got the idea of edge computing, the fact that these devices are connected to each other and although they may be for one purpose, so you put these sensors in the city to map to look at um, pollution patterns, but it can pick up other data as well because it's a computer device that can tell you other data that you didn't expect it to tell you. So that's on the edge of computing in terms of connecting to these different servers. Um, and again, in the in the in in cities particularly, this stuff's happening more and more. So it's, as support people, you might be working in the city, looking after these sensors in, within a city. That's going to be a job in the future, isn't it? If it's not already. In and there was a case study about this in Los Angeles. So in Los Angeles, they under every single traffic park, park parking meter, they placed a sensor pad, so they knew if it was being used or not. And what they did in order to encourage, you know, it's called push behaviour. So in order to encourage better behaviour from drivers, they made it so that if you parked after a certain time of day, the actual fare on the meter went up double or triple. Right? So it tried to encourage you not to go in rush hour, but tried to make sure that you came in different times of day and staggered it. And if you went in the right time of day, your park would be really cheap. If you went in during rush hour, it would be really expensive. So again, you can use all these different sensors and edge computing things to actually track what people are up to. And vibration sensors, you know, pick up how much traffic is going. You could probably then use that in order to you know, restructure buildings, make sure they don't shake to bits because all the trucks go up and down. 
Anyone live by a busy road? Get the house shaking all the time? No? Just me. Uh, the other thing then, in terms of network utilisation, so how much is it being used? How much bandwidth is being used? And again, it's for making decisions. If that stuff's only being used 10% of the time, then why do you need all those resources? Just, just put them somewhere else. Or scale them down, etc. On, and again, this is the thing about clouds. With clouds, you can look at the network utilisation, you could scale down and save the customer some money. So you've only used it 10% this month, so we're only going to charge you 10% this month, rather than 100%. The server that we've got online running Nextcloud and Mahara and the ticket system, obviously it's paid for 100% all the time. It's not massively expensive, but it could be. I could, could do it a lot cheaper if I, only, if I only used the cloud system and I only used it when it was busy, once or twice a year or something. Um, Internet of Things is used in industrial context. Lots of robotic devices and sensors are used. If you ever watch those programmes on TV about how they make biscuits and what have you, you can see all the different sensors. And if you look at some of those programs, they're quite interested to see what kind of sensors are used. In food production particularly, they have infrared sensors. So as this food skims across these conveyor belts, thousands a second, this infrared light is picking up bacteria. So if the bacteria is there, it shows up in the infrared light. So if the bacteria shows up, they stop the conveyor and get rid of that batch and throw it away. And it's going really quickly. But again, by, this, by your eye, you can't see bacteria. And even if you could see a mouldy thing, it'd be too quick to do anything about it. But with all these sensors, in terms of industrial thing, you can make this really fast industrial, really safe process. So that's how that stuff's used. And we already talked about the smart city again, using 5G sensors. What what part of the city is too hot? What parts are used a lot? Are the parks very used a lot, etc.? In Japan, don't they use um, footstep trackers to like use as energy? They do. Yeah, they do work out how to do that and. and pump it back into the people's sort of energy use. Yeah. You've also got smart clothes these days as well, I suppose, that pick up certain signals. Um, and then in domestic context, anyone got these Nest things at home? You can set your thermometers remotely with various other things. One of the, I mentioned this last week, one of the members in the staff room was actually dialing in with their app to set their washing machine up from, from, from college so that washing was done when she got back. So there's all types of devices are embedded. You can control them from anywhere. As the internet gets faster and more usable, not, not counting the bubble that we live in in Stroke College, you can do so many more things with your smart devices. So it's getting more and more smart in that sense that you can actually control things really radically from anywhere if you get the signal. Any questions on that one? So that's the sort of uses of devices and have the broader network. Right, in order for that to work, so the type of applications and protocols, a protocol is a set of laws or instructions that things follow. Without protocols, things just wouldn't work, right? So again, a pro classic protocol that you're used to is if you're all talking at once in the classroom, then nothing happens, there's no communication. So you have this protocol whereby in school, anyway, you put your hand up and my turn, some sort of signal, yeah. But that's a protocol, so, and the same thing, computers, all, although they act really quickly, you know, thousands and thousands of things a second, that's all still time-stamped, and they need to have some protocol about who's talking and what's happening. If you don't have a network communication between two devices, then one computer's just chucking loads of stuff at it, and the other computer's saying, I, I can't deal with it. Right, so they need some protocols to talk to each other. So web protocols. First of all, the, the, the grand idea of this hypertext transfer protocol. So how does one computer talk to another computer? How does it send pictures and text and video and all sorts of things from one computer, and how does it show them on the other end? So this language is, when you see a web page, if you, you look under the hood, hood, as it were, or the bonnet, uh, you can see then this HTTP 
if you look at the code of any website, we'll say heading, heading two, heading three, this is text, this is this color, this is that color. So that code says when that stuff comes in to the browser, the browser knows to display that page with a white background, black text, head, heading one, heading two, heading three, etc. That's HTTP. Now increasingly, a lot of stuff goes across the internet these days is, is very sensitive data. So you use HTTPS on a different port and it actually scrambles it and turns it into uh, hashed numbers so you can't break into it. So if stuff's going on HTTP, I can grab a big chunk of that data and it's just loaded text files or HTML. I can look in there and look, I can do a search with my database and say, pick up stuff that says password equals and just tell me the passwords and I can crack that data. If, if it's sent via HTTPS from your computer to the destination, it scrambles it up and just sends it as a load of nonsense, which is unscrambled at the other end. Right? So if you don't see one of these padlocks on the thing, and you don't see HTTPS at the front of the web URL, you shouldn't be sending data back and forth, sensitive data, because it can be intercepted and used. It's not scrambled up. Uh, then, so that's web, that's how the websites work. We've then got mail protocols in order to send mail. Again, initially, the, the, the oldest one is this SMTP. In order for two computers to send a file to each other, they just use, again, the protocol is a particular port, so it's port 25. So the computer will say, I've got this load of text, I'm sending it to this other computer, this is the address. So it opens up a channel, it goes to port 25 in the actual operating system and it sends this stuff out using this simple mail, mail transfer protocol. And the other end opens up port 25, receives it, and pushes it up through the OSI stack, so it opens up on your email client. Yeah. Um, now there's different, two different ways, I think we talked about this before, of getting your email. Your email is sitting on, your, on a server somewhere under your name. So again, if you look at your servers that exist at the moment, we're still logged in, I think we are. If I wanted to go in to look at your mail, should I do such a thing? In no particular order. Alex, top of the list, sorry. So in this particular case, on the server, I know you can't really see this, but this is, this is Alex's login. On Alex's login, there is a mail directory. You can see it, capital M, mail directory. There's also spam and Pizor, which are filters, which actually take that mail and, and put it into folders on your client, saying this is spam or this is whatever. So within that mail folder, mail directory, you can see the emails from on the server side, yeah. But so in your directory, if you're using, I think you're using webmail for this, aren't you? In your directory, you've got junk mail, draft folder, sent mail, current folder, new new email, etc., etc. Yeah? All of those at the moment are just text files which are read by your client or Alex's client, is it? Yeah. Now, on that, so on the server that we've got, on your login, in your home folder, there is a folder against your name which says mail directory, right? And if I, if I fire up an email client, it will read all those folders and it will say this is the draft folder, this is the sent box, this is this, that and the other. Right? Now, 
So that's sitting on the server. Now, what I could do with, I, if, I, if I fire up a client and enable POP, post office protocol, what happens is the email client will go to the server, to your home directory, and it will download all of those emails to your local machine, and it will delete them from the server. Right? So if I use a POP client, all of that email that's currently sitting in the folder will be downloaded and deleted. So if I then go to another machine and I log in, I'll have no email whatsoever. Yep. Pop downloads it to the mach whatever machine is currently logged in. So if you go to another machine, your email box is empty. Okay. So that pop, again, it's a very old-fashioned email system. In the days when there was very limited storage, people had to download their email. Now, storage is unlimited. We use this IMAP internet access uh, internet message access protocol. With an IMAP server like, like Google, whatever client you log into, wherever you might be, it downloads a local copy, but it doesn't delete it from the server, it just reads it from the server, and so it stays on your server forever. So again, your email on G in Gmail is always there, and even if you delete your account, it will never be removed from the server, probably. So your email will never go away. With a POP account, if you download it onto one machine, it's gone from the server. So that's the difference between those two. Now, I mentioned before that the networks are connected through routers, or routers, if you're American. And so a route is obviously from, from A to B, or A to B to C, or whatever. So routers, again, use their own set of protocols in order to say, right, if I'm looking, remember I said to you, we've got 30 hops to find your destination. So the router, we send our data from here, your email looking for something, or looking for a website. It goes to the closest router, that route has got a list of databases, a database table of all the different networks that it can connect to. It looks through that database and says, no, I don't know what the BBC is, but I'll, I'll send it to the next one, maybe they know. Right, so they send it along, and at some point, one of these routers will say, yeah, I've got a connection to the BBC website, and it will send it down to the BBC web server. Now, the way it does, there's different ways it does that, so we've got uh, routing information protocol. So in the package that goes out, the router puts a, a little package on their data, each, each of those little packages, and says, this is the destination I'm looking for, uh, and this is the sort of route I need. Generally, with this um, RIP um, protocol, it just, it just uses that hop thing. It just says, go through until you can find it. It's, there's no sort of logic to it, necessarily. It's a bit not that efficient, but it just gets the job done. More recently, this, and this OSPF is a, a Cisco-specific thing, because Cisco make most of the routers. This one is it is more intelligent. So it says, uh, if you go that route, it's a lot quicker than going that route. Right? So it makes decisions at the router level, saying this is the best path to get from A to B. Right? So RIP, routing information protocol, it just sends stuff on and on and on until it gets there. But the OSPF, it makes decisions and says, don't send it that way, because I don't think it's as quick, send it down that route. Okay. So that, again, protocol set decisions. So the decisions it makes is, where shall I send this information so that it works the best way? And routers are getting more and more intelligent in terms of what they can talk to each other and say, has anyone got this network? Tell me. And routers, again, it's in, in the abstract, these routers are all up there in the cloud talking to each other, saying, anyone got this network? Send it over here, tell me how to get it, etc. Right, and they keep these little databases. Right, so and take stand in the abstract. How do we abstract and explain the, net, the network, all these millions and billions of devices? We don't. We have this nice little model of seven layers which says these are the layers roughly the way they work. And that's the OSI model, open systems interconnect them. So it's an abstraction of the internet or networking in general. Uh, 
two different models. The classic one is this seven-layer model. So you've got the physical layer, which is the actual cables, the electrical signals that are bumping back and forth along the cables. The data layer, how that is packaged into the little chunks. The network, how it talks from one device to another. The transport, how it gets across all these different routers and things. The session is basically to make sure that when one machine's talking to another machine, they keep talking. They don't, one just doesn't stop halfway through, so I'm not interested in listening to you anymore. Bye. Right, so you set up a session, if you like, they're talking to each other. It then comes in, what kind of file format is it? That's the presentation layer. Okay, it's a Word document. Fire up Word, Microsoft Word, and let's have a look. Yeah, very briefly. So data, the physical cables, oh, the physical layer, the actual cables and things. Uh, data, how it's packaged up. Network, how it goes on to the different system backbone. Um, how it goes from A to B, the transport layer, what routes it goes through, what's happening at those layers. All of those, as it goes up through layers, it adds a little bit of de detail to these little packages so they know exactly where they're going and why. And at the other end, those things are stripped off until it pops up onto your browser. Right? So I try to picture the thing going down one stack across the internet and then up another stack coming out as a, as a package. That's the seven-layer model, which is more detailed. Increasingly, again, on the exam, they also talk about um, TCP IP layer, which is a sort of summary of it, I suppose taking out a few of the layers. Um, and for each of those, then more specifically, again, detail-wise, they don't seem to be asking for a lot of detail about these, just that you know that they are different layers of these different things. At the application layer, there are different protocols that can be used. So FTP, I still use FTP if I'm uploading stuff uh, at home. When I buy music and download it, I use an FTP server in my internal network to send files to my music server, so I can listen to them later on. Right, file transfer protocol, very efficient, uh, not particularly fast, but it gets, gets the job done and it doesn't lose any data. And again, if you, want to send it, if you want to send it encrypted, you use SFTP, slightly different port, and it uses encryption technology to actually scramble that stuff up. Again, if you want it to be particularly uh, protected. If I, if I hook my machine into your home network, or if I go around to your house and use your Wi-Fi, your Wi-Fi router will, will give me a, an IP address so I can use your internet connection as it does around here if you use the guest. And that's made capable of this dynamic host configuration protocol. So you set a range, you say, I've got 15 addresses that are available in my network. If somebody comes around your house and wants to use your Wi-Fi, they'll get the next number in line. If they leave, that number will come back into the pool of resources. So dynamically, it adds and takes away network connections. And again, that's why even in this network, we use a class C network, which is 192.168. blah, 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 which only allows 250 machines. But because the machines are going off and on all the time, they're randomly being assigned the same numbers all over the place, which means it's efficient, and you can make massive networks from very small ones. That makes sense. And in order for these, all of this networking stuff to work, we've got a server running on port 53, which is like a yellow pages, which probably doesn't mean anything to you, which is like a directory like your contacts in your phone, uh, that's DNS. So it tells you what this domain is, what the IP address is, how to find it, what the characteristics of it, etc., etc. And when you register for, if you buy yourself a domain name like Louis did, that domain will need to be an associated DNS to say, right, here's the domain. If people are looking for it, where do they find it? That's what DNS says. So if I type in my browser looking for Louis, Louis's website, the DNS, wherever it's local to me, will say, ah, oh, that, that website is actually this IP address, and it will go and find that machine on the internet, and then display everything. 
Any questions on that? So I'm really rattling through this. Everything in booklet in more detail. 5.4, components and benefits of virtual computing. You can listen to the podcast if you wish. Yeah. Don't yeah. die. Or your limbs taken off. Right, so components and benefits of virtual computing. Increasingly, we're moving into the cloud. And the cloud is just loads and loads and loads of computer resources, physical computers that are stitched together in a big software blob. Right? So they're virtual. They don't actually exist. There is no machine that actually physically exists to run some website. It's just a load of software resources which have been stitched together to make it look like a machine. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, if you think about it, if you use VirtualBox, you don't actually, you're not actually running, you're not physically running that operating system on that device. You're running it through the device's resources to simulate a device. Yeah? And again, if you've done some of the stuff that Jeff and I are doing at the moment, we're running VirtualBox and we're storing the virtual box on one cloud where that exists. So we're running it across the cloud network. Getting changed, you know. Right. So virtual machines. All of these things can be virtualized. And virtual machines means they're very efficient, they're easy to set up, easy to tear down, easy to increase, decrease, etc. Put them up wherever you want. If you've got something that's virtual, it's just a software, it's an abstraction, isn't it? If I want to, and again, if you, if you go to a cloud-based provider and you say, I want a new server with four gigs of RAM, this, that, and the other, they just type a few keyboard commands and there's your server, pops up in the cloud, right? It, it's just a space that exists, but it looks exactly like a server. It does everything a server does. And when they press a few buttons, it just disappears just as quickly, as opposed to a physical server, which, which is like one of these boxes in a data center somewhere. And each one of those will have you know, virtualized everything. So if you're, again, using VirtualBox, you can actually drag and drop stuff back from the host machine to the virtual machine, which is quite incredible, really. You can use the mouse, you can use all these functions, it will play out sound, it will do everything that the host computer will do. It's using the host computer's resources, but it's just running in software. It's not running on the hardware at all. It's all virtualized. Does everyone get that about virtualization? And again, if you scale that up to the cloud, you can have, you can spin up hundreds of thousands of machines all over the shop, and you can tear them up and tear them down as much as you want, and it won't affect anything particularly. And if, if my machine is going pretty slow, my virtual machine, I just phone up the provider and say, can you just put some more resources on? They tapity tap it in a way, it just starts flying again. Right, so it's really easy to do. So virtual servers increasingly the way people are going. Now, hypervisor is the is the is the Windows-specific way that a, a software abstraction layer, a virtual abstraction layer, sits on top of some physical hardware. Right? So Hyper-V or Hypervisor, it sits on top of, so it, it, it's the actual abstraction layer of, of how the software talks to this hardware, so the hardware thinks it's talking to another machine. That makes sense? Sure. <laughs> so if I want to... I don't actually have a computer, it's just an abstraction. It's just a, a set of ideas, but it still acts like a computer, but it doesn't exist. Software says it's got this amount of memory, this amount of hard drive, and it does all this processing, but it's not actually doing it like a regular machine. It's doing it just in software in a pretend way. Inception. Abstraction. Yeah, Windows Inception. 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 Windows, yeah. Windows I tried Inception. to get a virtual machine when I got a virtual machine before it didn't. It's not a virtual machine, virtual machine, virtual machine. Why, where do you get the resources from? For the actual virtual machine from what, the provider? 
if you run a virtual machine, so this this is running on a virtual machine now. So I uh, so my virtual box. What does it even say? What does it even say? Well, what is it? It says nothing. It's, it's a wave. wave. It's a wave. Oh, can see from me. So I'm running. This is here. Then I've got some jellyfish. So I'm running Linux as a virtual machine. These are the, these are the parameters of virtual machine. So I can actually say. So I've specified I want six and a half gigabytes of RAM from the from the host machine. I'm taking six gig of RAM from this. Uh, I've got 128 gigs for, uh, gigabytes for video, and I've got somewhere down here 15 gigabyte drive. So I'm I'm taking those resources from this machine, although it's probably just sitting in memory inside the machine itself. And for all intents and purposes, you know, it does, as you can see, it's doing everything a computer would have done if it was sitting directly on the hardware. It isn't. It's just an abstraction there. You, you can have it's allocated storage, can't you, as well? Yeah. So it changes depending on how much you use. Yeah, so there's various ways of, of implementing it. Again, and at the, at the top level, again, if you're going into support, increasingly where the money is, Alex, is going into this... Um, infrastructure making cloud computing the middle abstraction layer how do you make these resources the hard resources into these abstract layers that people can use whenever they need to and that's cloud infrastructure and cloud architecture is, is big business and it's really quite quite well paid so how do you make that stuff happen and you've got to understand even if you don't understand it in a really deep conceptual level you've got to understand that you just take these hardware resources and you abstract them off to make them resources which are available in a, in a sort of really ephemeral way, so I just want, from the 16 gigs of RAM that's on that, that device, I can't take all 16 because it just collapse. If you do that, you'll see, if I, if I zoom up the actual resources on my virtual machine to, to close to 16, it will just crawl, because the underlying host machine will be starved of resources and it won't like it. And so then, Microsoft is the main sort of hypervisor for this abstraction layer, and VMware is an old one that, that predates Microsoft by some time. Again, in the old days, people wanted to use different operating systems, and you can't use the same operating system on the same hardware. But if you have a virtual abstraction, so you just have resources that are available, then you can run two or three systems. And it's a much more efficient way of doing something. Um, and if we ever get back to it, we'll try and get that virtual server running up in the other room. Yeah, that got nicked. Did it? Yeah, I went in there the other day, tried to find it to... Boot well, I'll get, we'll get another proper one. I yeah. was going to dual boot it so I could use it for the Watts and that project. Yeah. Windows 10 on OneDrive and Ubuntu. We'll get another one because I think these laptops will probably act as um, virtual machines as clients because they don't need an operating system, they just need to boot. We yeah. need RAM. But I don't know where that PC has gone. Alright, well, I'll get another one. I think it's been good. So, in terms of the examination, what's the good and bad and the uglier of virtualization? I guess uh, it's more cost effective. Right? So you basically, you, you, if you if you sold a big server to a client, they only use a tiny bit of it. It's not very cost effective. If the client says, and again, like everything else, if you want to buy a PC these days, the, the, the smallest PC you can get has got quite a lot of resources, far more than you probably need, but that's all you can buy. And if you go up into the cloud. In, at the cloud level, at a server level, you don't need all the resources you do on a desktop PC because you're not running any desktop. Yeah. Most of the resources you use on your computer are to make that graphical display. On a server, you don't do that. They're headless. Everything's done at the command line. Right? You don't need all those extra resources. So a server running 4 gigs of RAM is quite powerful. That's all it needs. 
right? And anything above that is quite useful. But if you, if you only want to run a web server, you only need one or two gigabytes of RAM. That's easy to make that. If you've got a 50, 60 gigabyte sort of machine, you could just split it up into these little virtual machines. You could sell 10 of them rather than just selling one of them. And the clients are much more happy. Uh, they're easy to manage and maintain. Again, they just have a, this hyper-visualization, hyper software abstraction. You just type a few things in, make some machines, take them down, move them over here, move them over there, add a database, etc., etc. If you go, if you set up a cloud account, you basically, there's various options you can do. It just says, if you wanted to set up a WordPress account, for example, on the cloud, you just press a button and it sets up a WordPress account and you've got a website running all the database backend. Everything's done with one click. So it's much more efficient. It's also resilient. So again, the, the Google Cloud is scattered across the universe of, or the, the world, isn't it? So if, if, some, if your server starts playing up in, in the data center in, in Europe, it will just skip across to the United States and you won't miss a thing. Your server will just keep going and going. If it's a physical server and you have some problems with it, they'll have to take it offline and then try and refix it and put it back up again. It could, could be down for days. So it's much more resilient. Resilient means it just doesn't go down very often. Most cloud-based servers have failover, so if it starts playing up, they just spin up another virtual machine on the same rack and just move all your data across, just repoint it. Really quick and efficient. Um, it's more environmental. Again, you've got only if you're not you've not got loads of physical servers, each with their own CPU, GPU, and all this other stuff and power supply. You've just got virtual machines. All you're doing is taking a bit of software resource away. So there's much lower, from that context, much more environmentally friendly. Yeah, you've got massive data center, but you could have, instead of having 10 data centers to, to do 1,000 clients, you only have one data center with thousands of virtual machines. Much more efficient, uh, environmentally friendly. Disaster recovery is a lot easier. Again, because it's all in a central store, and it's all software enabled and controlled. Testing-wise, somebody says, I want this server with these parameters to test this piece of software I've got. You spin it up quickly in virtual software, test it out, and say, yeah, it's going to work, rather than going on the hardware and, and fiddling around with the hardware configuration. And an education training platform, I guess it's a lot easier to use because it's so much more efficient. So what services and types of benefits do we get from the cloud? If you go, and again, if you do a bit of research and, and look at the cloud and try and set yourself up a cloud account, you'll be given the option of either having your own private cloud, which nobody else can get any access to, or you might have a public cloud or community cloud, etc., where you're sharing some of the resources. It's not totally dedicated to you. So again, it really depends. If you're on a public cloud, it does mean that other people might be sharing resources, which are like your database resources. So if those five or six other people start really hammering the database system, it means it's going to re really slow yours down because you don't have a dedicated machine. So that's one of the drawbacks. Right? So if you've got a public or community cloud, those resources start getting shared out. And if loads and loads of people are accessing them, then it is going to go slower. Uh, and then you've got a hybrid thing where certain parts of it, your database might be running in a virtual server which is totally private. But some of the other stuff, which isn't really that sensitive, could be running publicly, etc., and accessible by different people. Uh, cloud services, then we've got these various AASs. Infrastructure as a service. If the college could, theoretically, put all of its stuff into the cloud as an infrastructure thing, right? So somebody manages it out there in space. We don't have to go around plugging things in and out of the servers. Everything is done out there, the infrastructure. 
So all your applications, etc., run out outside. To some extent, I suppose, you know, Moodle is now moved out uh, as an infrastructure, as a service, I suppose. It's not running on our servers anymore, but we're accessing it directly from our desktops in order to use it. So it seems to be in our environment, but it's not. And bit by bit, more stuff's moving out to these college facilities. Um, and you could have, at the moment, we've physically got our, our servers are physically in this, in this campus. Um, and again, maybe at some point you could move the servers out into the cloud and have somebody else manage them. Might be more efficient, might be more cost effective, etc. storage wise. Um, but again, it does get quite expensive. A, a one gigabyte server on your machine is quite cheap. Stick it up in the cloud, it becomes quite expensive because everyone has to back it up and manage it and keep prodding it all the time, make sure it's working. Uh, so that's where the cost comes in. Then you've got platforms as a service. So again, if you're doing you know, accountancy programs, you might be running those or a whole type of systems across the cloud rather than having it internally done. Um, everything that is, is handled for you rather than by you. So servers, storage, everything is in, is in the cloud-based system. Um, the whole platform could be there. So instead of all of our servers, all of the student support staff, all of the printing management, all that stuff could be in the cloud, theoretically, as long as you can access it with a decent connection. And, and the college has a fairly fast internet connection because we're part of the GIST backbone. And then functions of a service, as a service. Um, functions might be that, I think that, I think we've got our own internal firewall, but I think a lot of the external sort of virus controls is done as a service so we don't have control of that it's not physically running on our machines it's running in the cloud our machines access it and get checked before they come down so there's lots of things and you could have a hybrid of all these different bits and pieces in the end um, there was more than I actually expected because I think Jeff when you taught us when you taught us three of them which were the pass sass and es is how I remember it <laughs> pass fast sass and ex-ass well again yeah ex yeah you won't be asked on all of them, but it's worth knowing in case they come up in some sort of support. Remember it, actually. The main ones are going to be PASS and SAS, I would imagine. Um, software as a service. So again, I think, I'm fairly sure that your student advantage is run as a service outside. It's not run internally. We pay for a service for people to update the software and maintain that for us. We access it, obviously, from here, as I do, to do your registers. But that doesn't run in the internal network at all. That's software as a service. And we pay the vendor to run that service. Increasingly these days, you probably see on telly if you watch it, adverts for Sage. Sage is sort of number one accounting package. That's now software as a service. So you pay Sage per people that use it. And I guess really Office 365 is software as a service, isn't it? You're using, you're using Microsoft servers in order to have your Office suite, even though it looks like it's on your desktop. Software as a service. And then, I suppose this is a new one, everything is a service. So lots of companies now are trying to get people to go completely to the cloud. We could theoretically run everything. There isn't anything we couldn't run out in the cloud in this organisation, I don't think. And again, at some point, if the costs come down enough, it's far more, and this is about automation, isn't it? Instead of hiring four or five people to run this network for whatever thousands of pounds it costs, you pay 10,000 or 20,000 pounds a year or whatever it is and stick everything in the cloud and they do it for you. It's a much cheaper way of doing things or that puts, puts you guys out of a job. So you don't want X as an AS because that means you don't need any support technical people. Benefits of cloud computing, portability. Mm -hmm. 
you can actually access this stuff anywhere you want to, don't you? Once it's up in the cloud, you can go around on your phone, you can access your services as you need them, so it's more convenient for you, rather than saying, oh, I've got to go into the bank and sit down in their kiosks and access this, that, and the other. You, know, you don't need to go to those premises anymore. You can do it for you, what's convenient, on the move, from phones, from phones. Um, cloud sourcing, so you can buy services. If, once you've registered for some type of cloud-based service, you can have other services. So I've registered us, I think I told you, no, I registered us as a GitHub Educational Academy. And that account now, when you sign up, as long as you link into the, the Strode account, it gives you all this extra software you could use as part of the process without paying for it. That's quite a good service. So that's all the scammers. Elastic Cloud, on-demand service. Again, the elasticity or scalability of cloud is one of its main features. If my server, if I'm in the cloud, if it's the end of year, like most companies do their tax returns at the end of the year, in April taxes are due. So at that particular time, there's going to be a load of processing going on. It may be that your, your cloud is flatlining all year, but it's really busy in March. So you say to your service provider, can you just make sure that it's, it's really busy in that time of year? Um, and as an example, we had the same thing, so it used to work for an exam board. So of course in June, our servers were being hammered because we had online tests. And only the rest of the year it's flatlining, but in June, because we had two to 3,000 people taking tests, it was on its knees, so we had to get more and more resources just for that one exam window, if you can imagine. Uh, storage, again, you know, with Google, you've got unlimited storage. You can store as much as you want, and storage is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, so there's no limit to it anymore. Um, and it's cost-effective. So if I want to scale up a new service, if I say, actually, I need a new database system for such and such, you just press a few buttons, and up comes your database system, and away you go. Rather than saying, can, can you go and find a machine? Can you populate it with this, that, and the other? Can you plug this RAM in and do this, this? It takes ages. You just say to them, press a few buttons and make this thing appear. It's quite easy. Access cloud computing. Uh, benefits and creating resilient digital environments. So again, it's all about resilience. As you all know, getting through pandemics, you've got to be pretty resilient. But resilience in networking terms, you don't want your server going off every three days and going down for a couple of days because you're just not going to get anything done. So you need stuff to be resilient. It needs to be working all the time and available for you all the time. So how do we make things resilient? Right. Updates and upgrades. If you know, again, it's not quite as bad as it used to be, I guess, but if you're, as soon as you log on to Windows, it will say there's an update, there's a security fix, etc. But that may mean that security fix might mean that the machine's not going to go down for days and days, so you need to install it. You need to keep it up to date to make sure people aren't hacking into it and destroying it. There are lots of problems with software, so it needs to be fixed all the time. Um, other resilient things, making the hardware better. Again, hardware is becoming cheaper and more efficient and faster, so again, you keep need to upgrade to keep up, keep up to date with things. And don't forget that hardware, most hardware is an MTBF, meantime before failure, usually about 10,000 hours, like hard drives, which is three years non-stop. So theoretically, most hard drives will die after three years of constant use. And if you think about it, it's the same for phones, because when you're charging your phone up, it should only take about 1,000 charges. A thousand charges is three years. If you keep charging it all the time, in theory, it should only last three years before the battery dies. And it does degrade. If you've got one of those sensors on the battery, it will show you that it's going down. Every time you, every time you charge it, it diminishes slightly. 
Uh, replacement and removal of hardware. Um, again, you've got to be able to make sure that if stuff, you need monitoring devices. One of the key protocols on a network, particularly, is a management protocol which goes around looking for problems and looking for electrical signals which, which signify that hard drive is about to fail. On your, hardwares, on your hard drives at home, you've got a piece of software which is called Smart, which actually tests how functional this hard drive is. So you can run a utility on your hard drive and you test how quick the write and write speed is, how good it is digitally, electronically, all those types of things, to make sure it's in reasonably good health. And you'll probably see if you run that on your hard drive at home, you'll find that one or two of the sectors that are storing data are bad and cannot be used anymore. Bit by bit, it will decay and destroy it. Adding redundancy, if my hard drive fails, if you look at the server in 202, has anyone seen that? The server in 202 has six terabytes of drives, they're hot swap drives, so if one of them dies, you just pull it out, you plug another one in and the system re reallocates and it sits back up, stores all the stuff again, right? You don't want your server dying just because one of the hard drives dies. Hot swap. I don't know what RAID, I didn't set it up. But again, in terms of resilience, if the servers run hot swappable drives, if one of the drives is failing, you, you pull it out, and because of RAID, you plug it in and it's automatically populated with the software it needs. Uh, decommissioning, removing legacy hardware. Okay, once stuff's too old to be used. In 206, I'm hoping next year we'll do a bit of a capital bid and replace those machines. The, one, the machines that are in there now, we can take back into 208 and start using those for other purposes, can't redeploy them for something else. So decommissioning, what do you do with those things? And what do you use them for? Those, those machines next door are still reasonably okay. They could be used for quite a lot, I would guess. Or we pull them apart, take the hard drives out and all that stuff. Device hardening. When you do this, is particularly if you're doing networking, in terms of network security, how do you harden the network? If, I mentioned before about protocols, if you've got all of the ports open like 25 and 51, 53, all these things, it means that people can start attacking those. And if I look at, um, it's not happening quite as much as it used to, but on, on the server that we're running, if I look at the system logs, um, now you can't read that, but I'm, every couple of seconds I'm getting somebody that's trying to log into the system, in this case using port 41074, trying to hack into this system to take control of it. That's every couple of seconds. Some of them are bots, some of them are actual people, and they're trying it, and if you look at it, obviously they've picked up the domain name, so I get somebody logging on, usually it's like Jim, Joan, John, Jim goes through an alphabet of names, trying to log in as an email account, and you get that on any server, that's probably happened on your home router as well, all day long. So how do you harden against that to stop people doing it? So that's, if you're not using FTP, disable the port, simple as that, that's hardening, isn't it? If you're not using email, disable port 25, etc., etc. Do we need, do we need to learn the ports for the exam? I don't, well, you might need to do the main ones. You need a few of them, like email, yeah, FTP, SSH, that type of stuff. Um, so for email, the port you need to know is 25, that's SMTP. Pop, pop account is 110, I think, some of those. SSH is port 21, those are the main ones. DNS, port 53. And then the, the F, uh, HTTP is port 80 and HTTPS is port uh, 465, I think. No, 
Limiting user account functions. This is why you can't do much on the network because you know power is responsibility, isn't it? So when you log on to a network, you don't give all the admin rights because you could you could not deliberately, but you could cause some problems by just having too much power and start deleting stuff that you can't get back. So again, you people need to have the, the access that they need to have. Uh, the other thing about maintaining the benefits of having a resilient system. Yesterday, I'm sure as you all know, was National Backup Day. Is everyone aware of that? National, National Backup Day yesterday. Mm -hmm. Everyone backed up their system. How often do you back up your system so you don't lose stuff? April Fools. It wasn't April Fools. Might have been. No, Sounds good. So, effective backups. On premise, we talked yesterday about having a, a network address uh, access storage on in-house. I've got um, a NAS device in my garage and I use those electrical plugs so it goes through the mains and every now and again it just backs up my system out in the garage so if any problem if my house gets hit by a jumbo jet and drops on it at least my backup jumbo will be in the garage jet. or whatever or lightning by a jumbo jet um, off-site again if most of you I would imagine have got a couple of gigabytes up in the cloud for various accounts again it's worth storing stuff there now and again if you've got an apple phone you automatically get a gigabyte if you get a Android phone, I think you get a gigabyte, whatever. So off-site storage is a useful way of having that stuff safe. I've got some terabytes. I've got so many different accounts and different emails. No, no. But again, you need you need to have a working backup of your system, particularly if it's valuable stuff. You know, if, if it's your accounting system, if you lose it on your local machine, if you haven't got it somewhere else, you're stuffed. So again, you should, and again, think about that in the company term. If we lose any data in the college, because the college has some sort of fire or flood, if we need something somewhere else, we have to have that by law. Uh, and then the cloud, increasingly, people are using cloud-based storage and servers because it's cheap and effective, and it's always on. Uh, and then again, if you're using those types of things, what are the appropriate standard operating procedures? If you're in networking support, which most of you are hoping to go into, you will set up some type of standard operating procedure. What do I do if there's a flood? What do I do and what, how often do I do backups? Where do I back them up to? How do I back them up? How do I check them? One of the key things about backups, which I saw today on Twitter, somebody said backups are great until you realize that you can't retrieve them. And that's the thing, if you don't test it often enough, it's no good backing up loads of stuff if you can't get it back. It's just a total waste of time. So when you're doing a standard operating procedure is you'll do a backup every few months and every month you'll do a, ret a retrieve, right? If that doesn't work, it's pointless doing backup. A Rick rollback plan. A Rick rollback plan. Roll yeah, rollback back plan. Rick roll. Okay. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Sure. 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 Uh, so, Rick so standard operating procedures. So again, maybe on the maybe something on the exam along the lines of what is a standard operating procedure for backup. So. Make sure the backup's secure. Have some sort of system to back it up, whether it's incremental or granddad, father, son, etc., etc. Those types of things. Structured staff training for again, when you're inducted to this place, you should get some training how to use the systems. You've never do. I don't know. Never did. Uh, most companies should teach you how to use the software or the hardware, at least so you're absolutely you know competent in how to use things. And when that stuff changes, you should have some updated training. 
And again, if if you don't get into software support, one of the big things in support is training. Training people how to use stuff and how to fix stuff. It's quite well paid. Staff induction, you had student induction when you first started here. Show you how the system worked, how to log in, etc. Um, and then updated policies and procedures. If if the college starts doing things a different way, then there'll be an update to policies and procedures. You'll have to do things slightly differently. So that's something you do in support quite a lot. Some of the benefits of having this ultra-resilient digital environment is increased security. When you're storing and backing up stuff or sending things or, or retrieving things, it's totally secure. You're not going to lose anything. If companies lose data, they go out of business quite quickly. Right? So it's got to be secure. So transfer and storage. If you are backing stuff up into the cloud, is it secure? It's no good sending it to the cloud. Because if it's going to the cloud, it's likely to be going through several different devices at one time. So each time it goes through a device, people are grabbing that data and using it. How secure is your backup? Reduce system vulnerabilities. If you've got a secure system, people can't get into the system and steal your stuff, right? How secure is it? How have you done? How can you reduce those vulnerabilities? How can you stop people getting onto your back backups of data? Right in the college, the server room is locked. I don't even. I can't even get into it with my pass key, so I can't get into the server to, to do anything. It's it's controlled only by the the admin server team. But that means that there's no vulnerabilities. People shouldn't be able to get in there, get onto the server, and delete everything, is even if it's by accident. Is Geoff allowed in there? Don't know. Probably not. Is the network. Uh, reduce probability of cyber attacks. <laughs> if you lock down the ports on your system, then you're limiting the number of cyber attacks, right? If people can get in, and it's about escalation, if somebody can get into the network using the, the email account, for whatever reason, Mr. Jones, right? If I could break in because you've left port 53 open or whatever, I can get into that port, I can then escalate and attack other things. So don't have ports open that you don't need. That's the main thing. Uh, so the other thing about having a good system is it increases your reputation. If every time somebody gets hacked, remember the classic example of Talk Talk. Once they got hacked and all their data got lost, they lost one third of their value overnight, and people then start stopped using them, and they still haven't got back anywhere near to what they were before that happened. Right. So reputation is very important, and your brand is very valuable. And finally. Lower downtime services means happy customers. Right? If, if your system is re resilient and it's got very good security, you're not in the news every day because somebody's hacked into your system, it means your company looks really good, you get more customers, um, and people then start talking positively about the service. Oh, you need to need Jesus' company. They're never down, they always work, etc. etc. Do you finish? I'm finished. You know, it's literally one minute past two right now. That's what I said, didn't I? One, oh, Any questions? Thank you for listening to our podcast. Hopefully you learned something. If you didn't, listen to it again. You might actually learn.